We're going to begin back in Mark, all spared and Lord willing, next Sunday. Just one more Sunday away from Mark. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to pray and ask God for its much-needed help. And again, it's good to see everybody. Chapter 14, verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meats eats to the Lord, but he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us live to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that you might be the Lord of both, he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approved. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Paul will continue in 15, chapter 15, which will end his argument in verse 13. But more about that later. Let's pray, please. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we would ask that um, you would open our eyes, please, in order that we might see the wonderful things in your word. And we would ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you took a bulletin this morning, you saw the title, and the title was, When Christians Disagree. And you'll notice that it's not if, but when, because that time will always come. And in that, have you ever thought how much thinner our Bibles would be if unity was not a problem in the early church? 
bear with each other, forgive each other, submit to each other, patience, don't judge one another, all given because all was needed. Christians disagree often. It's one of those things that we do really, really well. And you should take note that when we disagree on something other than gospel truth, when we disagree, look at your Bible, please, if you have it, verse 1, on disputable or debatable matters, this is not the certain sign that unity is a problem in a church. To think that would be very naive because Paul is making it clear in chapter 14, unity in the church is not everybody always agreeing on everything, specifically on disputable matters, secondary issues. Loved ones, that's a cult. That's what's called a tribe. That's not community. It's probably one of the reasons that a church won't grow. Because it's hard to exist in that kind of thing. The Spirit doesn't feed it. You see, this section of Romans continues the application that Paul would make of the gospel, which began in chapter 12, verse 1, and it runs all the way now to the end of the letter. And the theme of chapter 14, the great theme that Paul is trying to establish is the great call to love each other. But here's the question. What does Christian love look like practically? Right? It can't be just a word. So if you say it out loud, you know, then it's all good. Consequently, what Paul says here is his concern is to tell us what Christian love looks like practically with all the diversity of humanity which God intended and which should be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Because we are not a cult and we are not a tribe. At least we shouldn't be. The church is the family of God, not the family of, and then we put in our last name. And so Paul applies pastoral wisdom to a contentious situation which existed in the church in Rome. And in that context, he says what ultimately matters is not external. So again, verse 2, not what we eat. Verse 5, not those special days and feasts and festivals. And not matters of drink. Verse 17, wine. Verse 21, wine, each which had become issues in the church. Now, Paul's concern is not with those externals, but rather the eternals. Verse 17, do you see it there? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, all of which are part, again, verse 17, of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Christ over the church. Therefore, what Paul does, he takes these like marginal and relatively trivial issues in the local church to open up some profound theological understanding needed for the, the church. The church then, of course, and the church now, of course. And the direction which Paul is heading in his instruction is there in chapter 15, verses 7 to 13, specifically verse 7. And what Paul wants to do is he wants us to be united in our worship and service of God. So that's why he says in verse 7, chapter 15, accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Right? Question. What brings praise to God? When we accept one another with all the diversity that we have. And by the way, the word, <laughs> I'm so glad I looked this up. The word picture uh, of uh, the Greek word for accept is holding each other tightly. Isn't that wonderful? It's a word picture. Hold each other tightly, hard in. Accept each other in order to bring praise to God. And that acceptance that Paul speaks of begins in chapter 14, verse 1. Do you see it there? Accept the one whose faith is weak. 
for the reason that when diverse and incompatible Christian people who are made in God's image, when they accept one another in Jesus Christ, they prove that the words of Jesus are true and the work that Jesus does in a person's life is real and honest. You see, the harmony of the local church is proof that God is fulfilling his promises. It's proof that the gospel is real. It's proof that what we do here really, really matters. But when we elevate disputable, verse 1, disputable, debatable matters, secondary issues, and we won't be satisfied until they're injected in the body, then what we are saying is our rights matter more than God's glory. And the story that God wants to tell to the world through the church about his son is being diminished. F. F. Scott Fitzgerald, my daughter and I, we, we love his work. And I found out recently that after his death, they discovered a whole list of plots for future stories that had never been written. And one such plot read this. This is what he wrote. A widely separated family inherits a house in which they will all have to live together forever. (laughs) What does that sound like? A widely separated family inherits a house in which they all will have to live forever. That's the storyline of the Christian church. Yet what is the reality? Let's be honest. The reality is we seem to be gifted, verse 13, passing judgment on one another. You know, biting comments, mutual suspicions, character assassinations, private or public, you know, cruel comments, judging one another, a church behaving badly. And we know that Paul knows that you don't need God to to bring together a group of like-minded people to have, quote, church in the general sense of the word. He was converted out of that situation. There's a church, by the way, in Washington, D.C., and it's filled with lots and lots of people where the pastor doesn't call himself a Christian, the church does not believe in the atonement, they don't believe in a physical resurrection, and the pastor isn't even sure there's a God. And that's terrible. But you know, there are churches who say, you know, if you don't speak in tongues, then you can't be a member here. Or there's churches with pastors who tell parents on the raising of their children the equivalent of what flight attendants say before the airplane takes off. Do you know what that they say? Please make sure that all your electronic devices are turned off. And that's the, that's the thing they want to tell you. So God help you if, if you or your children are, are seen carrying a cell phone in the church. There are churches which have certain scruples which are spoken and sometimes unspoken. What you buy, what you wear, how you spend your money, what you do, say, on a Wednesday night or with your free time. And if you don't follow the tribal line, then this thought, well, there's, you know, there's something wrong with them or you know they're just a little bit less they'll come along sooner or later all of which verse one do you see it there disputable matters secondary issues in which the bible is relatively silent on in the past the early church had a word for this it was ideophora and it means things indifferent it means they really don't matter and as you think about this the the maxim which says agree to disagree is a good maxim unless what? Unless what is at stake is central to the gospel. If it's not a gospel issue, there is to be liberty and there is to be love. Do you know this quote? It's been said that Luther said it, Calvin said it, Wesley said it, Newton said it, but it's a great quote. In essentials, gospel essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love or charity. 
So just as it is important we obey what Paul is saying here, it's equally important that we know what Paul is not saying. He's not saying, hey, everybody do what you want. And everybody else has to deal with it. No, Christian ethics still matter, right? The the instructions of Jesus are still clear. Humility and service, holiness and repentance. Those are the virtues which are the bloodline of the church of Jesus Christ. However, Paul's concern here is that we don't engage in our favorite Christian sport and we go to war over things which ultimately don't really matter. Don't really matter compared to the great truths which made us Christians in the first place. So if a person believes that in order to have unity among Christians that everyone has to agree about everything, specifically now then disputable, debatable, secondary matters, then chapter 14 needs to be ripped out of our Bibles. Agree? And I have a sneaking suspicion because I know my own evil heart that that kind of person just wants everyone to agree with them on everything. Loved ones, chapter 14 is part of Paul's gospel application. And Paul is telling the Roman church filled with Jewish and Gentile Christians, people who came from incredibly different ways of life and views of life, and they still held to many of them, and that was just fine. Paul says, look, there are some things that now, and yeah, later on, because things change, that you're not going to agree on as Christians. And that's understandable. And actually, you know what? It's theological. It's theological. However, if we ignore chapter 14's instruction and try to example, uh, for example, to bully our brothers and sisters, to threaten them with non-participation or demotion of our love or our care, then you have replaced God in the gospel with you and your opinion. And that would be grounds for disunity. Oh my, would that be grounds for disunity. See, I was thinking about this week, and, and my guess is that the many Christians in the West through the course of a week, they probably don't study like Christian doctrine, Christian essentials, main and plain theological truth. It's rather more devotional. You you had a bad day, let's get it better. Or you're at the start of your day and let's make it good. And all that's really understandable, right? But you know, it's not always very helpful, especially if the devotional material doesn't do what the Bible does and take you to the cross of Jesus Christ, Christ. And you see, I say that because the cross is the most powerful demonstration of the wisdom of God. Where do you get that from? Colossians 2. All the treasure and all the wisdom of God is in Christ in the cross. But you know, the evil one and evil people and even the evil in ourselves would be glad to spoil our peace with God, which Jesus has secured for us by reminding us of our sinfulness reminding us of our imperfections, pushing forward disputable matters, secondary issues as additions for our acceptance with God or as additions for our happiness. Which, by the way, if you think about it, this difference between the Holy Spirit's conviction of our sin and the devil and human condemnation of our sin is that the evil one and evil people and our own flesh and secondary issues will never take you to the cross with all the essential theology which which all good theology will lead us to. No, they stay away from the cross. The equality that it brings, which sets aside all grounds for division. I mean, just think of it this way. When someone says something bad about someone publicly, more often than not, they don't usually say at the end, I forgive them because they're my brother or sister in Christ. Usually they just stop right there. And we need to think through that. The purpose of God in the gospel is to create a new community which is global. 
And the church local needs to be a picture of that, a, a microcosm of that. No borders, no boundaries, not feeding on secondary issues, which we have to hold to if we're going to stay together. Because you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ has broken down all those things. So you ought to be able to take any Christian church and put it in any place in the world, and it's going to be just fine. It's going to be just fine. Why? Because the gospel is essential. That the death of Jesus Christ is the only payment needed for our standing with God and our acceptance with God. And certainly not works. And certainly, as in the case here, debatable, disputable matters to prove or to improve or to establish a right standing with God or even each other. Hoping that, here we go, right? Hoping that, you know what? Because I swore off all forms of tobacco and because I only have one ear piercing and not five, think of South Africa, or we and the kids, we only watch the Hallmark, Hallmark Channel or we all give 10%, we signed a thing, or you know, we swore off stretchy pants, Disney World, and the internet thinking that that stuff might shut the mouth of the evil one, shut the mouth of evil people and our own flesh and bring us all together. It won't. It won't. It's just building something which would probably exist even if you took Jesus Christ out of the picture. You understand that? It's just building something that would exist anyway even if you took Christ out of the picture. It's a club. And, and, and the entry into the club is hard because we are the gatekeepers and not Jesus Christ. Loved ones, please listen to this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful, if the only thing that we have in common is the gospel, it is more than enough love and more than enough unity to have with those whom we have nothing in common with but the gospel. I'm going to say that again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful, if the only thing that we have in common is the gospel, it is more than enough to love and to be united with those whom we have nothing in common with but the gospel. We need to think that's through as we move through the text. Three phrases. Keep quiet, think right, stand down. The first point's along us. So don't panic when you get to point two and you look at your watch and like, he better stop. I'll stop. I promise. Number one, keep quiet. And what I say that is because I want to begin at the end, verse 22, because this is where Paul's instruction is ultimately taking us to. This is the sumum bonum, the highest good. This is the conclusion of his argument that he's been making in those verses. And we can save ourselves so much trouble as Christians if we begin this way. So verse 22, Paul writes, So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. So a question is, when Paul writes, So whatever you believe or whatever you believe about these things, what is these these things? And the answer is very clear. The very things which Paul began with in verse 1, the disputable, debatable matters. So in the context we said, verse 2, meat and veggies. Verse 5, Sabbath and special days. Verse 17, verse 21, wine. Subjects that have to do with serious Christians, right? So whether they're weak or strong, they're still Christians. And they're serious about their topic. And Paul labels these things, verse 1 again, as disputable matters. Now, this is what that word means in the Greek. It's lines of thinking which are rooted in self, in the self, self self-reasoning. So that means dialogue is possible there. It doesn't come from heaven. It just comes from us. So this is truth 
not tied to the gospel. Therefore, Paul writes, verse 22, he returns to the basic idea of this section in a phrase. This is his whole argument. Okay, here it is. He's locking it down. Opinions, secondary matters, disputable, debatable matters are not to be open for debate. They are private matters to be kept between the believer and God. So, it's not that they're bad and we should hide them. It's that they really don't matter. So don't make so much of them. Again, it's not that they're bad and we should hide them. It's that they really don't matter. So don't make so much of them. In other words, hold back. Don't go public with disputable, debatable matters with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because those matters are not doctrine. They don't save anyone. But of course, we're human. And what is the problem? The problem is sometimes trying to define what is a disputable, debatable matter. But the problem lies with us, not with God and his word. So in reality, it is a continuous task in the church to keep peeling away these debatable, disputable matters. Because so much of the trouble in the life of the church is personal opinions on debatable matters. Which, because of Christian freedom, we should be free of. Let's think for a moment. What is actually Christian freedom? Well, Christian freedom is not do whatever you want unconstrained. No, that's called bondage. That's called bondage. And so, for example, with issues of food, Paul would tell the Corinthian church, because they had their own food trouble. 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we don't eat, uh, no better if we do. And if you were in that context, it would be impossible, um, well, if, since we're outside of the context, it would be impossible to really understand to an Orthodox Jew what Paul was saying. They would ask him after the sermon, are you sure? (laughs) Are you sure? Christ's death on the cross sets us free from having to please God through a system of rules and regulations, secondary issues. Because eating meat or not eating meat will not make us even a tiny bit more acceptable or unacceptable to the Lord. Salvation, a right standing with God, has nothing to do with what's on your dinner plate, has nothing to do with the artwork on your body, has nothing to do with your line of clothing, all disputable matters. And you see, that explains the doctrine of Christian liberty. Christ's grace has liberated us from the terrible burden of having to prove ourselves by keeping a set of rules. That's Christian liberty. Now, the New Testament doesn't leave us there. Because again, Christian liberty is not, well, you just do whatever you want, by golly. That's not Christian liberty. That's selfish self-indulgence. Why do I say that? Because Paul said that to the church in Galatians. Listen to what he said. Chapter 5, verse 13. My brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, Christian freedom. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love. Right? So wine is fine. But you know, if you drink too much wine, you could become an alcoholic. Cocoa plant is not evil, but if it's, inter- if it's turned into cocaine, well, it could ruin your life. Sex is fantastic, but not if you're having it with someone other than your spouse or you're replacing it with porn. Loved ones, Christian liberty sets us free to do two things, to love God in all the choices that we make and, yes, love each other in the same way that we would love ourselves. 
It's beautiful, isn't it? That is Christian liberty. Therefore, it makes great sense that verse 22 says what it says. Whatever you think about non-essential things, debatable, disputable matters, just keep them between yourself and God. Enjoy your freedom, but keep quiet. Because not everyone's going to understand. Not everyone's conscience is attuned in the same way. Therefore, verse 22b Happy is the person who does not condemn himself by what he approves. You could also say, happy is the church which keeps peeling away disputable matters and keeps the gospel truth at the forefront. So you're thinking, people, would you just think through this with me? Let's say it's Sunday and you're at Coffee and Connection and you meet someone new to you and they're a Christian, but they're new to the faith or maybe they have a weak conscience and they're in a financial pinch. And they say, man, the government takes out so much of our taxes and the property taxes and the taxes for this and taxes for that. What do you think? Well, you could answer that in a few ways. You could jump on that and feed it a bit and say, you know what? Our government is so messed up right now. We need some more conservative people in there and just go down that line. Or you could take the other side of that and say, you know what? Our taxes actually do a lot of good. They help a lot of people. And you can go down that line. Or you could make up an excuse, which I probably would, and say, oh, look, one of my children are picking their nose. I need to go now. I'll get back to you in about a year. We'll talk through that. So you could say all those things, or you could say, hey, you know what? I understand all that. <laughs> but something which has been a great comfort to me all these years is the words of Jesus. Because I find them to be true. He said, you know, don't worry about your life and what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear Life's a whole lot more than food and, and body and clothes and all that stuff. And he told me to look at the birds and he told me to look at the flowers. And he said, doesn't God take care of them? And I'm like, yes, he does. So is he not going to take care of you? So don't worry. You have a heavenly father. He knows what you need. So just, just keep the kingdom first. That's what Jesus said. And all the other things God will be glad to take care of. You take care of his things and he'll take care of your things. He promises. And you know, as squirrely as I've been, talking about myself now over the years, God's taken really, really good care of me. And see, I say that in order to bring praise to God. Well, how about this one? My children are really rough to raise. And then here comes the questions. Do you let them listen to secular music? Do you watch secular movies? How do you dress them? How do you do? How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you? How do you respond? This is how I would respond. Hey, that's a lot. And you know what? To be honest, most of that's up to you. So it's not for me to decide. But you know, the Old and New Testament is pretty clear. I am to be a student of my child and see how God made them so I can raise them that way. And that's where I push all my parenting to. And, and the Bible teaches me that I'm supposed to teach my kids the Bible. And I'm supposed to show them what it looks like to be a Christian in a fallen body. So I get to teach them how to be good. But I also have to teach them how to repent. And if I'm a dad, I can't exasperate them and frustrate them, asking them to do too much. And you know what? Honestly, everything else is up to you. There's a few principles that are given, but holy cow, there are lots of liberties. One more example, please. You're a Christian, and you're on social media, and you post a personal opinion or disputable debate on a matter which you say is essential doctrine straight from the lips of Jesus, but it's not. It's just you. Okay, what happens? Well, you get some pushback from other Christians even. And you should. Why? Because it's not central. It's not doctrine. It's just you. Verse 22. 
Paul says, whatever you think about these things, just keep them between yourself and God. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 7, in order to bring praise to God and not ourselves. By the way, these things, like the, 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 the disputable, debatable matters, back in the day, they were smoking and drinking and dating and movies and dances and makeup, pants or dresses, jeans, no jeans. And it all seems so trivial now, doesn't it? But back then, it was like, the whole thing could be shut down if we're not all not or are wearing jeans, whatever. So we could spend the rest of the day discussing these idea four, these secondary matters. And we might not even agree on those. So, for example, in the life of the church, church government, liturgy, no liturgy. From, for some people, the clear sign that the Holy Spirit is active or at work, you can't have any structure at all. For some people, the spirit of order orders the service. For some, it's somewhere in between. Or how about how often do we take communion? Or the exercise of the gifts in the church? Or a style of music we use in the services? Or what's the right use of a Sunday well spent? Or how about the clothes we wear when we come to church? Smart or scruffy, formal or informal? I remember back in the day, if someone wore a three-piece suit, you know, the word on the street was, that guy's serious. You come in here with a three-piece suit now, you're like, oh, you know, I'm hoping nobody's wearing a three-piece suit. Ah, please, we'll have a nice talk and I'll apologize. But you get the point. I mean, what is that? Hands raised, hands not raised, hundreds of things. And what about our personal life? The things we eat, the places we go, alcohol, no alcohol, television, The movies we watch, the books we read, the lottery, insurance and investment, private education, homeschooling, body piercing, Republican or Democrat. You see, Paul is saying going public in the church with these debatable, disputable matters is a fast track for division. And they have been. If the world Christian encyclopedia is right, there are now 33,000 different Christian denominations as of 2015. Which makes verse 22 look like it is. It's a word from God. It's a word sent from God that is outside of the culture, outside of the context, and therefore it's not bound by the culture, and it's not bound by the context. And if you follow verse 22, then there comes the blessing. Do you see it there again? Verse 22b, happy is the person who does not condemn himself by what he approves. In other words, as we've been saying, As soon as a person goes public with a debatable, disputable matter, holding it up as essential, then you are open to condemnation by other people, perhaps even your own conscience, and certainly the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it should be, because it's getting in the way of the gospel. It's getting in the way of its truth, its freedom, and the person of Jesus Christ. And it certainly doesn't bring, chapter 15, verse 7 again, it doesn't bring praise God. So everything is not so obviously plain in Christianity, is it? To the extent that we are very sure that we scarcely need to be expressed or explaining things. In the host of these secondary issues, keep it quiet. The principle, enjoy your liberty, just don't flaunt it. Don't make it doctrine. Okay, so then someone says, all right, isn't that open to abuse? Could it not lead other people to sin? Could it not hurt other believers? In other words, what if you can't keep quiet? That's the second point. We'll be brief. Think right. And this has to do with conscience. And it's in two places. Verse 14b 
But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. Verse 23, but whatever has, whoever has doubts is condemned even if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. That is an amazing truth. This is a black and white truth which says, you know what, gray is okay. Gray is okay. If you like, Paul makes this radical statement that two Christians can do exactly the opposite things to the glory of God and both be right because it's a matter of their own conscience. Some things are right for you that are wrong for others and some things are wrong for you that are right for others. And the only thing which would make it wrong would be if, verse 23, if it wasn't done in faith, which is the joy and trust in God. You see, what matters in anything we do is if it comes from faith and it brings glory to God as opposed to the person who's doing something or not doing something because they want to be part of the particular group. So you'll do it or you won't do it for them and not for the glory of God and not by faith, which Paul says is a sin. And you know what? As long as I've been a pastoral ministry, I see this happen often. Okay, so the person goes public. You know, we don't take vacations because, you know, it's so carnal and it's so wasteful. Or, you know, we do take vacations, but we always try to do Christian ministry on our vacation. Or we only do Christian things. Do you? <laughs> well, we're going to start. <laughs> As opposed to a Philistine like me, when we take vacations, we eat a lot and we play a lot. We go to every secular museum we can get our hands on, and we go to pagan plays. But you see, verse 22, keep quiet. Keep quiet about those things. Because what is right and wrong may differ. And we need to understand that for each other. And you know, Paul could have said to the weak, would you just get over it? He could have said to the strong, back off. He doesn't. Verse 5, do you see it there? Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, Paul says, think right. Think Christian. So to go against our conscience or trying to get others to follow our conscience, Paul says, is wrong. In other words, Think it through. Why would we elevate a secondary issue to essential doctrine, diminish the work of Christ on the cross, and dismantle the unity that he's already won for us? Finally, okay, so let's say the disputable matter becomes, as so many will, it's out there. Then what do we do? Well, we need to understand this is not the gospel. We need to pray for grace to to be better, to keep quiet more often. But when it does go public, I need to think right and say, what is right for me isn't right for everybody, so don't preach it, don't teach it, don't put it forward like gospel, and let the person be. Leave them alone. And I will follow my own conscience as my conscience submits to God's will, even as we should know that our consciences can be seared, dulled by sin, distorted by religion, distorted by the world. But when our conscience is informed by the word of God, guided by the spirit of God, then submitting therein to the will of God, then you follow your conscience. Isn't that Pinocchio's story? Follow your conscience. Don't, verse 23, violate your conscience. Which again means that two Christians can be doing two different things Verse 13, asking, is this for the Lord? Is this the highest good? Is this me loving God? They get a yes. Two different things. They both are right. It's incredible. You know what I said at the end of my studies? This is why I love being a Christian. Chapter 14 is one of those reasons why. This isn't robotic. This isn't weird. This makes complete sense to me. You can't always tell on the outside who is 
pleasing God here, especially when two Christians are doing two different things, which takes us then, it makes sense to me, our final point, stand down. It's pretty simple. Verse 10, do you see it there? Stand down. Jesus is Lord, not you, not me. He, Paul says, why do you judge your brothers or sisters? Why do you treat them with contempt? We're all going to stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every now, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then each of you will give an account of ourselves to, to God. In a phrase, stand down. Jesus is a person's only judge. Not you, not me. Stop flaunting your liberty. If you don't, verse 13, look what might happen. You may be stumbling block to other Christians. That's verse 13. Verse 15, your brothers or sisters may be distressed. Verse 15b, you may destroy them, not like lose their salvation. Romans 8 stands. But you may derail their spiritual progress. Verse 20, you may damage the work of God. Stand down. Is your personal freedom worth all that risk to you? Is it? Do you have to have it knowing it can cause all that pain for your brothers and sisters for whom Christ died for you? But look at the people you're hurting. You know, aren't longer acting in love. And a Christian's liberty is always limited by love. So we need to be sensitive to others and non-essentials because it matters to God. I thought through this, and I thought, what, is the hardest, what would be the hardest example for me in this? And I'll give it to you. It might seem silly, but it makes me happy thinking about it. One day, Lord willing, my daughter is going to get married. Now, right now, what I do through the course of the week is I got two things going on in my mind. The playlist of songs at her wedding. Okay, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the dancing at the wedding, because I can't dance. So it's fun to pretend in your head that you can dance. Because, you know, when you get out there, it's like, that's me. Okay, whatever. So I'm thinking, playlist, dances. So I pushed it a little bit. Let's say, you know what? My daughter, my wife and I, we have a friend who came from a background where dancing was like, they did a lot of bad things. And so whenever they see the dancing, they're like, I can't do this. Here's the big question. Would the friend's own family be willing to say no dance at the wedding because of my brother or sister in Christ? You know what the Bible tells me? We better be. We better be. We'll have a private dance at home. It'll be less embarrassing for me and probably a whole lot funner. See, that's, that's it. Our diversity should be enjoyed. We need to keep quiet. We need to think right. We need to stand down. We don't really have that much diversity here. I mean, we should be honest. So it can be easily we become a tribe. The strongest voice wins. The Bible says we don't need to think alike and act alike, and at times we can have opposite conclusions and everything just be fine when it comes to non-essentials. Hold your convictions, hold your tongue, tell them to God, not to each other. Honest disagreement is not a test of unity because our convictions are not important. And by the way, um, John Newton told me this week, he didn't tell me, tell me, but I read it, He said that when a house is on fire like the world is, a charismatic, a Methodist, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, all are welcome to bring water to the house. We all should have buckets of water. If you're in Christ, you're all acceptable. 
If you're not in Christ, talk to me after the church service, and I'll be glad to speak with you about him. He's a wonderful job paying attention this morning. Let's pray, please. God and Father, you're going to have to help us in this. I imagine we're going to have to think through things a bit. We're going to have to open our Bible wider. Our hearts are going to have to be more tender to your truth, beginning with myself. You've got to help us because this is such a beautiful principle to get right. It does bring glory to you when we get this right. And I believe with all my heart that we all want to get it right. So please have mercy on us to that end for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please stand as we close.